0: Welcome everyone today. We have the privilege of speaking with Dr. Josh Umber. He is a proponent and in fact I would say a leader in the DPC movement um, that's direct primary care and if I've screwed up that acronym he will correct me shortly. Um, Direct primary care is a concierge-like system but he will argue I think effectively that concierge is probably the wrong word for that. It's prepaid Um, primary care, all you can eat, if you will, and it is revolutionizing uh, primary care across the country. In my estimation, it's making primary uh, care cool again. So a little bit of background. He was born and raised in Alma, Kansas, my old stomping ground, and um, went to the University of Kansas School of Medicine, completed family medicine residency at Wesley Medical Center in Wichita, and he conceived and opened Atlas MD and this is a practice that he'd been dreaming about for nearly a decade. And it represents what he describes the ideal medical practice where he can eliminate the headaches that are causing the profound burnout in the practice of medicine across the country. So without further ado, welcome. I'm going to call you Dr. Josh. Is that okay?
1: That's excellent. And thanks for having me
0: on. Perfect. So as I, Alluded to, you're the guy I reference as making primary care cool again, and I believe you're on a mission to transform primary care—not just for you, but how it's, how it's experienced by doctors across the country, and no less important, how it is experienced by patients. And some have described it as concierge medicine, others prepaid primary care, others direct primary care. Why don't we begin with what is the problem you were trying to solve for yourself? What is it about primary care that needed adjustment from your perspective? And did you practice a conventional primary care before migrating into your new model?
1: Uh, so, direct care is the idea that healthcare should be simple. You know, I think most great Silicon Valley solutions end up simplifying things, whether that's Airbnb or Uber or Netflix. But we get into healthcare and it's just this swamp of regulation and paperwork and complexity and, and just kind of grayness. And that's not working out well for the doctors, the patients, the insurance company, anyone. And so we looked at that and said, there there has to be a better way. Um, growing up, my dad was a trash man. He's a lawyer now. So I still tell people that he's a trash man. It's, <laughs> but it's you were less embarrassing. <laughs> yes, <Yeah>. exactly.
0: <laughs> uh,
1: so that, uh, you know, but he ran a, a fantastic business for 20 years that was very straightforward. You paid monthly. We picked up weekly and we didn't have to over-engineer that. And then my first experience working for a plastic surgeon as an undergrad doing his insurance billing and coding you kind of saw the sausage getting made, and it was incredibly difficult to get paid for the work that you had already done. And, and it wasn't just good enough to be great at your job. you you could be actually bad at being at medicine, but if you knew how to play the paperwork game of insurance, then you would get paid. and And that seemed wrong on on so many levels. So it really was kind of the Emperor's new clothes. A, a fresh set of eyes coming and saying, well, you know, this is a fugazi, there, There's nothing real here that that's helpful. So we we started that in 2000 and got to you know, observe other doctors doing insurance-free models for 10 years before starting our own, and said, and you know, we don't need to change medicine. We've got great pharmaceuticals and labs and training and and resources. We just need to change the way we're getting paid for it. Uh, into a way that makes more sense with actually how the consumer wants to buy it. Now, I don't know how many movies I'm going to watch in a month. So instead of going to Blockbuster now and, and paying $5 for a movie and $3 for a late fee, I pay $10 for Netflix once.
0: And, and now remind everyone who may be listening <laughs> what who Blockbuster was and where they are today. And there actually is still one Blockbuster left apparently.
1: And apparently thriving um, because there's limited resources there. But yeah, yeah. you know, Blockbuster is the old uh, physical movie rental where you could even rent the VCR if you needed to. Um, but, you know, now they've gone the, the way of the Dodo Bird and Kodak because mm-hmm. they didn't see the evolution of their consumer and their business model. And and that's where healthcare was going. Burnt out physicians, uh, 70% of family doctors meet criteria for burnout, and it's just Hard, if not impossible, to provide really good empathetic care to patients when when you're burnt out yourself. Right. And for as long as I can remember, I've loved family medicine. And for that same amount of time, I've been told family medicine is going to die on the vine. It's going to be replaced, or it's unnecessary. Increasing paperwork, declining reimbursements. It's just unsustainable. And we didn't believe that. We thought we had the bones of a great model. We just needed to rearrange them. And uh, not that we think insurance is bad. Uh, I love my life insurance. I just never want to use it. <laughs> and that's why it's and affordable. You don't, you, don't
0: feel che- you don't feel cheated
1: if you don't die, correct? Right. No, exactly. And I'm not asking my life insurance to pay for groceries and clothes and, and, and everything else that makes life possible. So we said, well, how do we you know, uh, eliminate the need for it? How, how do we mm-hmm. you know, st- start from the beginning again and say insurance is for expensive things that don't happen often? You know, my house doesn't burn down very often. Um, But the self-fulfilling prophecy is, well, meds are expensive because insurance is expensive because meds are expensive. And one of the realities we realized was, no, we could go to the same manufacturers and wholesalers that the pharmacies do. And I can get a thousand blood pressure pills for five, eight, ten dollars, just depending on the medicine. When it becomes under a penny a pill insurance, Again, not bad, just irrelevant for this case. It's it's essentially car insurance. I'm not asking Geico to pay for gasoline or oil Mm -hmm. changes or windshield wiper fluid. And there's really, there's no additional value to them trying to help with that. And if we can make a blood test, uh, an A1C to see if you have diabetes, it's $2. Go cash price, it could be $200. And what are
0: people paying through insurance, if they even know? I mean, we, we've gotten so used to paying for everything through insurance. It's almost like the heroin model in healthcare. It's hard to extract people from something that they've been used to getting for what they perceive to be as free, but nothing is really free.
1: Right. It, the, the momentum of the status quo is, is impressive in healthcare because the, the car insurance analogy is always so po- uh, poignant is... You, you, you couldn't take an, a car insurance agent and try to sell them car insurance that's built like health care because that's not how they're used to buying it. It wouldn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. But then a health insurance agent can go and sell you the same, you know, illogically flawed type of insurance. And, and we, we crave it because – and I'll blame doctors rather than insurance companies or, or other groups. We're the gatekeepers of care. We're the providers of care. Uh, We shirked responsibility for the problem um, and the solution for a long time. If we take that responsibility, we can take ownership of the solution and say, all right, do I really need $150 per visit? Well, not if I don't have seven staff members and not if I don't bill insurance and not if I can make my prices transparent enough that everybody knows what they are and, and this works smoothly like every other industry and not if i bring value to my patients if i can save you 100 dollars a month on your medicine then my you know 10 dollar a month membership for kids
0: or 50 dollar a month membership for adults is is a savings yeah you know? so go into the pricing of how you do that um, because the pricing is really attractive and with your pricing you're still able to make um, a significant profit so you win the patients win and you've been, you've been educating them in the process
1: yeah uh, so we decided after looking at all the different types of models uh, the concierge model being the high-end 25,000 per person per year type model um, or the fee-for service model which is more affordable but problematic because you just don't know how much time you're gonna need as a patient. So we, we met in the middle and did an affordable membership so it's ten dollars for kids, 50 75 or hundred dollars per month for adults based on age, uh, no pre-existing conditions, and for that they get unlimited office visits, home visits, work visits, uh, technology visits. So calls, texts, emails. We have no copays for anything. Any procedure we can do in the office is free of charge. So EKGs, stitches, biopsies, joint injections, ultrasounds, bone scans, lung scans, Holter monitors. All these things that would normally be very expensive. But an EKG cost me 36 cents. The coffee in the waiting room cost 60 cents a cup. <laughs> so if and I you don't throw them, that in, for, by the way,
0: you, hey, you throw the coffee deal, in.
1: The, the coffee's free. The EKG's free. Um, your stitches are a dollar. Urine dipsticks to text for infection are 10 cents when you're, you know, actually buying them. But they're being sold in the system for hundreds of dollars because of higher overhead and complexity and just a broken model. But then. To further challenge ourselves to add value for patients, we started doing something that was unique uh, in some ways, but the wholesale medicines and labs. So again, we can now find additional sources of value to continually help our patients. Um, But now when your medicine's, again, 30 cents uh, a month, patients don't need insurance. Now, if you have insurance for the car wrecks, cancers, heart attacks, great, but a lot of people just need their blood pressure, their blood sugar, their depression, their, their migraines, these kind of things managed first. And, and when those things are priced out of the market, then they feel like they have to go get insurance. So they have a $10 copay. And I think that's where, you, back to your reference about no free lunch, is the greatest lie the devil ever told was to convince people he didn't exist. And if, if you can say, well, these things aren't expensive, it's $10 for generic, or it's $20 for name brand. Well, name brand Lexapro is $12 a pill. Generic Lexapro is $0. $0.07 a pill. So we can so cheer you're for paying. You're overpaying, <laughs> yeah. you yeah. know. And, and, and the insurance doesn't necessarily care because they're going to raise your rates next year.
0: It's a pass-through. So it's them. a
1: pass-through. But, but patients don't see it as a pass-through. They don't understand. Uh, it's hard to fathom. I I can respect that if I get a a coupon to Starbucks, I'm saving a dollar or two, but I know what the total cost of the drink is. And a patient just, we've never given them the data to know that the difference between a generic and a name brand might be hundreds of dollars per month. And that's why your insurance goes up by double digits every year because we have a broken market that doesn't allow for transparent shopping. What I find so interesting is CVS or Walgreens or any kind of retail pharmacy swears that the the pharmaceutical market is different We we couldn't possibly tell you what these things cost and there's so many factors But ten feet from that pharmacy counter. There's thousands of products for sale in a transparent market So they can they don't want to when they can mark up something a thousand percent
0: Um, I mean most people many people have had a direct experience where They don't want to use insurance for whatever reason, and they'll download a coupon from GoodRx just Mm -hmm. to get um, their prescription filled. And the thing that's immediately shocking is just how much less that is than list price. And that's not even, I mean, the pharmacy is still making a profit on it. Then all you have to do is download a coupon. You don't even have to be a member of GoodRx. You just basically spent two minutes on a website. Just to get a better price, and I'm guessing that you can even crush those prices through um, through through access to wholesalers, direct yep. access to wholesalers.
1: Yep, the majority of the time, um, there's a few medicines with manufactured discounts and coupons and GoodRx that can be cheaper at the pharmacy, and so then we do that. We have the best of all worlds, and, and the GoodRx type innovations um, are a nice band-aid to a broken system. But, um, you, like you said, you, you can see that at one place it's $20 uh, cash price and and 10 with a coupon and another place it's going to be 80 cash price and and 30 with a coupon. I mean, these things are, it's like Kohl's, uh, the the department store where the coupons don't matter because the prices are made up. It's, it's all these, uh, you know, jumps and hoops that people have to go through and they still don't know what it really costs. Um. Versus last time I bought a TV you know the the difference between the same TV at Best Buy and three other places was very marginal and And they're all very competitive and price shop and want to help me but if I found out that one uh, store was selling the TV for a thousand dollars and the other was selling it for for a hundred which is is a very applicable you know uh, percentage comparison between pharmacies oh, I would never go back there. Best Buy would have lost all trust and respect as a consumer. Um, and, and they can't afford to do that, so they always put their best foot forward. And we're not getting that from the pharmaceutical or retail pharmacy, from labs, from you know, doctor's offices. We have a system that's not designed to be consumer-obsessed and put the patient first and be transparent and pricey. Uh, and I think a lot of that goes back to how we're taught in med school. Uh, we, at least at mine, specifically, verbally, out loud, told that money is bad, business is bad, uh, uh, profit is, is unprofessional and unbecoming of a caring clinician. And even though none of us want to work for free, we won't go down this alley mentally of what does it mean, how do we make our salary, what are we charging to patients, is that uh, you know, appropriate? And we've just abdicated that responsibility off to administration and look where it's got us. And I would say your know, healthcare isn't different and shouldn't be treated as a, as a business. It's so important. It absolutely must be treated like a business. Uh, and this is as, as close of an emotional bond, I think, as you can get in a business. Uh, you're paying me and feeding my family in exchange. I'm caring for the health and well-being of yours. That's that's a very important relationship.
0: Yeah. If, if you don't des- if you don't deliver value, you don't deserve to stay open. The Absolutely. marketplace will speak. So and it, it, it's also that if you can't make a profit, you can't stay open. So mm-hmm. Those are the, the twin bookends. You have to make a profit, but you want to deliver value and not rape the public. Exactly. So. And, and that means it forces doctors to to kind of know their own model better and say,
1: what am I doing and how is this working? And, and what do I want as a consumer? When I want um, uh, support from Apple, I don't care that it's not Monday through Friday, 9 to 5. I was working during those times. Mm-hmm. you know. So they have support hours after that. They understand it's a service industry. And, and when we're working with patients and an insurance model, we, we sort of learned helplessness style. So, well, I can only do what insurance will pay me for and and, and my oath be damned. When we are working directly for the patient, you say, okay, now I've got to problem solve. I've got to innovate. And if, if I'm not available after hours, they'll find the next doctor that is. And if I can be valuable to a patient because they can text me after hours and that saves them an ER visit, then that's going to help me be profitable, sustainable, and, and, and continue on.
0: So patients have direct access to you. Um both during hours and after hours and I I think I heard you correctly you also make the occasional house call is that
1: accurate that's correct
0: so you come to the patient I was going to ask you why would patients want to participate but it's patently obvious why they would want to participate they get access to you pretty much 24 7 and I'm going to guess that they don't abuse the privilege that they triage uh, fairly reasonably is that accurate
1: yeah, you know, patients uh, by and large, you know, 98% are very reasonable. Um, I think in, in the context of the, the reason we like the membership is that you don't know how you're going to buy this. I also don't know when my car is going to break down. So I want my mechanic to be available, you know, early and late so that they can fix my car outside of my busy workday and, and be available. Or they'll come get my car, take it back and fix it so that I can stay at work um when a, a mm-hmm. patient doesn't know when they're going to be sick how much health care they're going to need and when they're going to need it but when they need it they want it and they want it now and they want it from somebody they trust and they want it from you know to to not be a financial crisis so if a doctor all is very reasonable just, yeah all those very are,
0: reasonable <laughs> propositions
1: <laughs> those are pretty reasonable things and mm-hmm. and so how do we do that well the, the fee for service just call up and pay bit doesn't work as well because that's unpredictable for the doctor and the the patient. But the membership model, uh, it's why Netflix, it's why we have Amazon Prime, it's why we have so many different versions of this is it's a a beautiful agreement between the the provider and consumer to say, you know, we'll, we'll just balance out both of our wants and needs. And if you can pay $10 a month for your kid, To have 24/7 access to save you a thousand-dollar ER visit when you need stitches on Halloween because you tripped and fell on your costume, and so you know you come by the office, we sit you up, it's free because the suture cost me a dollar, and you know that's all baked in. Um, And and we don't want patients to have to worry about the cost of these things. The alternative is a thousand-dollar ER visit for something that could otherwise be simple. and so if you wait to pay when you need it, you pay more. But if we can plan ahead, uh, then we can really absorb
0: a lot of these costs. You know, one of the fears that doctors have is that in an all-you-can-eat buffet that patients will <laughs> eat quite a bit, um, which is interesting. And, um, but I had an experience um, many years ago related to, well, not to, um, well, it was, it was actually accessing I mean, Let me describe it and then you can comment on it. Um, We had, I lived in, I was practicing as a neurosurgeon in a small community, but it had dry air of about a quarter of a million people. So it was pretty active, but there were just two of us providing neurosurgical coverage in the area. And we had an answering service. This was back when we were using beepers and everything else. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So we had an answering service that was just absolutely horrible. I mean, they were beyond horrible. So anyway, one day I was... um, I just wanted to swim some laps. I gave my beeper to the lifeguard and I said, look, I'm gonna swim some laps for 30 minutes. Um, I told my answering service, if there's an emergency in the next 30 minutes, call me, the, um, the lifeguard will tap on my shoulder, I'll get out and I'll tend to it. So I, I did about two lengths in the swimming pool, which would be about 50 yards, I get a tap on the shoulder. He says, it's your beeper. Um, and so I called, I called my answering service and it turned out it was, um, about a laxative order. So, I mean, sure. to me, that was not an emergency, but the answering service said, look, we, we can't, we can't understand what is an emergency or not. We're, we're really just a pass through. Anyway, I was, that's I pretty pissed off, but I went back into the pool, swam a lot faster because I was so pissed <laughs> off. And then about five minutes later, I get a tap on the shoulder again, sustain, same lifeguard, same answering service I call, and I can't recall exactly what it was, but it had the same import of a laxative disorder, uh, laxative order. And, and so I realized then and there, I could not trust my answering service. So I, I, um, I talked to a programmer, he created a system which answered the phone in the office It said, if this is an emergency that needs attention within the next five minutes, press one this can wait 30 minutes, press two, otherwise leave a sure. message. Yeah. Um, my my great fear in this experiment was that I would be inundated with everybody pressing one, that everything was a crisis, a friggin' emergency. Nope. Patients were great. They triaged themselves great. <laughs> and it was a wonderful, um, I mean, not everyone, you know, um, sometimes the patient's scared and they really don't know, but more often than not, because you're in a, Trusting exactly. long-term relationship, they tend not to. Uh, be, you know, it's like going to a restaurant. If you go, if you go back to the same restaurant over and over again, you're not going to beat up on the servers. If you only go one time, well, then you then you may. But um, <laughs> if you're going to go back and forth, you tend to treat everyone with kindness and respect. Has that been your experience in terms of the all-you-can-eat model of primary care here?
1: Oh, I think you it, it hit the nail on the head there. Uh, Steve Covey's great book, The Speed of Trust, you know, talks about this exact issue. And, and when they can trust you as a provider but you as, as, a, as a business model, I think, too, is like, okay, they're there. Um, that's what my membership is for. We, we see 95% of our patients same day. Um, if they want to schedule for next day, that's that's up to them. Um, we respond to text messages and emails promptly. They start to lose that medical anxiety that says, if I don't get a response or don't get it today, it may be weeks. You know, they're Mm -hmm. too busy. They're swamped. I don't even have time, enough time with the doctor when I scheduled it in advance, let alone when there feels like there's an emergency. And so that ability to open the door and have some trust and know that, Hey, when you're texting, you're texting your doctor, not the on-call doctor, not a stranger. It's me. They self-regulate, and uh, you know, um, the the art of war would say if there's a problem with the soldiers, blame the general. <laughs> I think if there's a problem with the patients, blame the doctors. Uh, you know, you can't blame 600 different patients, but we can blame take ownership individually and say, how do I create a system that they can use smarter or better? And the phone thing is perfect. One, two little changes, and let them say, oh well, no, it's it's not a zero to five minute emergency. It can wait, and, and then uh, it, it helps so much else in the system because now you're not being inundated every minute with every question. You mm-hmm. can stockpile those up every 30 minutes and address. Uh, and so, using technology to to you know, improve on that, and I can schedule a text message to go out you know, every week and, and follow up on a patient that I know needs extra, you know, attention, and and you know, so they don't get lost in the system. Um, to say, well, shoot me a picture of your kid's infection every day, twice a day. Mm-hmm. That way you don't have to come to the office. You don't have to ask for days off work and lose vacation days. You don't have to have a functioning car and gasoline and car insurance and a boss that will let you leave. So all of these things make their the, – the, the more that the doctors are involved in the model in the delivery of care and, and tweaking that uh, in, a, in a patient-centric way, I think the better it gets for everybody, they, the patients see that they respect it, appreciate that we're we're
0: working for them,
1: and and they don't abuse it.
0: I mean, it is very respectful of the patient's time, and that is the one commodity um, we don't have much of, either doctors or patients today. We had someone in our in our, in our office who I think was bitten by a tick over the weekend, and I think. His concern was, and he had a fairly sizable rash a few days later. Uh, with that, but he didn't want to take off, from, you know, half a day to to meet his doctor, etc. And he ultimately just found an online service to shoot a picture of what he was experiencing, mm-hmm. combined with the symptoms, and he had a prescription for doxycycline waiting for him at the <laughs> uh, at the pharmacy. And I think the total cost of this à la carte um, service was. About fifty-five bucks, and to him, um, although you know, admittedly, the copay and everything else may have been slightly less. His time is what is so valuable, and and actually, he never left his desk. He continued working all day, other than for the fourteen nanoseconds it took to take the picture and upload it and process his credit card. So he was delighted oh. with, with with that.
1: Peter Thiel, uh, you know, founder of PayPal, was asked once if he could predict the next unicorn. Uh, you know kind of startup company said, so, of course not but we can predict what won't change and people will always want a better product at a better price faster and easier and if you apply that to getting a hotel room you get airbnb if you apply that to taxis you get uber and if you apply it to healthcare, care you get direct care because you're right that the, the value of time for people like that the complexity of going to an urgent care and being around other sick people and and paying too much and not knowing what you'll pay and not being able to pick your provider, he went. He, you know, essentially picked a service. Yeah, picked uh, the provider through that. Got what he wanted, and yeah, and they they did the most cost-effective, time-effective care they could. Could you do blood work for a you know, tick bite? Well, maybe not in the first two weeks. Are you worried about it? What state are you in? Yes, you're higher risk. Let's try some doxy. Um, and we try not to abuse antibiotics in this model. Of course, we yeah. want good care, but but the point was he, he got the care he he needed in a cost-effective and time-effective way, and and the traditional system doesn't doesn't offer that. Um, but he didn't know what his copay would be at urgent care, and some people would go to the ER for those things. So we have this system designed for patients to fail. So solutions like direct care or, or telemedicine um, make the world very small. Now we can we can share information and, and why send a two thousand pound car halfway across town to check out a bug bite when a picture is a good place to start and if it, if we need a follow up visit great um, we can do that but if not then you know let's let's find the most effective ways we can to be valuable to our patients
0: I think one of the arguments is that uh, against this type of model is that if it doesn't render perfect care all the time and fails on occasion then then we shouldn't go down that road that we should continue the status quo but my argument is that the status quo is imperfect on its own meaning that right you know we're always going to make mistakes we're, we're not 100 percent accurate on our diagnoses or our treatments in the conventional model or in any model but that is the nature right. of healthcare.
1: the the funny thing is uh we get compared to the status quo a lot and i accepted that for a long time because that is but more and more we we reject that and say if you ask a question of direct care ask it of the system you know know, we'll we'll expect new better faster you know we'll expect a different set of criteria from the new proposal but we'll tolerate horrible things for the status quo and said okay if if you don't think direct care can provide like you said you know this 100 percent level of care um, when we have unlimited office visits, phone calls, text messages, emails, no copays, free procedures, labs that are 95% off, pathology, 85% off. Okay, so how do you expect the current system to do that in seven minutes with a copay, with huge procedure fees, with huge lab fees, medication fees, with an office visit that's available every two or three weeks for follow up? Well, <laughs> You know, now that you you almost demonstrate absurdity by being absurd, is it doesn't make any sense to try to get 100% health care in in the current model. That's painfully broken. Um, And the future is here. It's just unevenly distributed. I think as patients realize there's a better alternative, they're they're flocking to it.
0: I know that some... um one of the biggest challenges in a primary care model the the existing model not your model is that the doctor doesn't have enough time with the patient and i can't recall if it was william osler who said if you will take enough time to listen to the patient they will actually hand deliver the diagnosis to you yes and and i find that i'm not even engaged in the daily practice of medicine right here but i know that if i'll listen to a story for 30 minutes I'm more likely to capture nuance and detail and more likely to get an accurate diagnosis on someone um, than someone who only has four minutes to uh, to get to the right answer. Um, Yeah. So I would think that the one thing that really is helpful on a number of levels is you've got more time to listen to the patient's story. I'm guessing the patient appreciates that because they don't feel rushed, even though I feel pretty good at being able to deliver nouns and verbs only and getting (laughs) my problem out to a doctor. I know that many people feel pressured. Um, They're not, you know, they're not trained actors or public speakers. And so they they don't get it. And they feel shortchanged with the doctor with one hand on the door. And I know that can't be, that can't feel good for the doctor when when they know they also have a waiting room full of uh, 25 people and they've got to go through the same exercise over and over again just to get through the day. Can you comment on that?
1: Oh, y- yes, it was Oslo who said that, and I, I completely agree, is uh, this is like baking a cake, a- and a good cake's gonna take 30 minutes, and you can innovate all around that cake and maybe speed it up a little bit, but it's gonna take the majority of 30 minutes. To, to try to bake the whole cake in four minutes is not gonna be a good result, uh, not now, not ever. And, you know, we take a, a very rigid system, ICD-10 and CPT coding and, and all these kind of just numerical type things, and then we apply it to the messiest of, of possible scenarios, which is the patient. He goes, if a doctor has 1,000 patients, that's 1,000 different people and personalities and, and probably 2,000 different ways of utilizing the healthcare system depending on if they're sick or healthy. If they're healthy, they're more comfortable waiting a little while, and if they're sick, they need it now. And they're, they have anxiety and depression, and so you're going to make someone sit in a stressful waiting room, mm-hmm. leave work on a day they didn't, you know, they may not have been ready to uh, to come in, wait for the doctor, and then pour your heart out in, you know, hopefully under four or five minutes, so that I have a couple of minutes left for charting and and explanation and throw a medicine at you, um, and we expect that to go well. Uh, every time? No. I mean, it, it's mathematically impossible. There's a great book, The, um, uh, the Master Code, I think, uh, about uh, master algorithm uh, about computers and whatnot. And they use a, a math reference that to get a 100.0% chance that you'll have two people in a room with the same birthday, you need 367 people. Right. To have a 50% chance, you need 23 people. So this idea that we're gonna, a doctor is gonna schedule 30 people a day. They're all gonna show up on time, ask only the right number of questions, be an easily solvable problem, get their answer, um, be okay with one or two minutes of, of Q&A, and then leave on time with nothing else going on every day for a career. That's is yeah, mathematically impossible. It's zero. But the so it's a, it's a, it's a messy system. We we can't engineer it. We have to be flexible enough to allow patients to. Show up early, show up late. Why do they show up late? Because their boss grabbed them on the way out. They hit a light. Life happened. Um, and then when they have a, uh, it was a personal example, a cancer diagnosis, and they sit in the parking lot for 25 of their 30 minutes because they're too afraid to come up to their appointment
0: Right.
1: Pre- because they know it's coming. You know, And then you have to be available after that. And sometimes you can be, and sometimes you can't. But on average, we see six people a day, not 30 people a day. So we're allowed to be very flexible. And if you don't show, that's fine. If you need to text me or email me, all of these things blend into a richer, easier, more patient-focused way of accessing care. Um, I don't think I'm a good enough doctor to do it in four minutes. At this point, we're used to giving them 30 minutes and walking through, okay, you have heartburn? All right, is that related to anxiety, depression, insomnia? What's going on? What's your stress level? You know, What have you tried? What's not working? Any constipation? You know, and just working through, like, okay, well, I think your best heartburn medicine is, is a depression medicine because of the connection between serotonin in the brain and the stomach. But you're clearly you – know, this is a stress ulcer. And, and you're, you're depressed, and it's manifesting as that. And we wouldn't have gotten to that until the 20th minute. So right. um, no, health, good health care often – to feel empathetic, thorough, uh, patient-focused. It, it takes the time it takes, and every patient's different. We just, we'll just never be able to over-engineer that part away.
0: Yeah, em- empathy definitely takes time. You can't deliver empathy on demand in four-minute aliquots. I don't see that happening. No. Uh, I, think, I think that's a formula for burnout. Let me change gears right here. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of dating myself a little bit, but when I went to medical school, my tuition, believe it or not, was $300 a year. That oh, I hate just, you. I know, <laughs> the, those are the good old days. Um, and, but that didn't include room and board, that was just the tuition. Oh, um, well. So consequently, <laughs> even then, I still took out loans because I had to live. Um, at, um, you know, I couldn't live in a tent, so I had to get an apartment and everything else. But um, that price has clearly gone up. And I know that many primary care doctors today graduate uh, from programs with, with the same debt as specialists. And so this incentivizes um, people to take or graduates, recent graduates, to take a higher paying specialty, even when their heart is really focused on doing primary care. Talk a little bit about how your model bridges the gap in pay between uh, well, bridges a gap in career choice and pay. How is it that primary care doctors can make enough to pay their bills, have a satisfactory career, a career that they want to do, and not be forced to do something they don't want to do?
1: Right. Uh, you know, we all start off with lofty goals. Uh, you, we we get into the love of medicine from science or people and and that, that humanistic side of us, and then have to learn the science side, and then get through training and everything. And then once you, you're you that deep into it, you, you, you see the sausage of healthcare being made. You say, well, the primary care docs are overworked, burnt out, unhappy, no passion. I may have loved the idea of it before, but I, that's not a path I'm going to intentionally follow. If I've done this much work, I might as well give myself the opportunity to specialize, to maximize my potential benefit for myself and my family right. And although i might say love the idea of family medicine i can also like the heart and i can also like the lung um or a procedure so they, they'll they'll make these very i think logical trade-offs that that anybody would um to have the best of all worlds if possible and now i think what we're seeing is even the specialists are burnt out as it used to be you know, great to be uh, a dermatologist or something. It probably still is, but it's getting harder all the time as Medicare cranks down on things and insurance doesn't want to pay for stuff and patients have higher deductibles. So uh, that, that burnout is real everywhere. And it feels very counterintuitive to say, I'm going to do less and make more. And that's the bit I don't think we appreciate because we don't study business. We're we're idiot savants. We know medicine really well, but every year I get, you know, Apple delivers me the option for a better, faster, stronger phone with a brighter screen and a longer battery life on a thinner battery. And those things should be incompatible, but they find a way. Steve Covey's book, The Third Alternative, And, and I think that's what healthcare really is. It's a third alternative to no insurance or insurance is let's do this differently and if now in this model we have one full-time nurse for every two physicians uh, and the standards would be 5 to 7 staff
0: for and humans are and and humans personnel are probably one of the more expensive components of a practice if you start oh, adding yes. people you start adding cost and it may not necessarily mean an increase in revenue coming in now in a traditional insurance based practice you do need these individuals who are coders, et cetera, generally, right. to collect your money. These are collection agents. But if you've eliminated um, the source of revenue from a third party and getting it directly from the patient, you don't necessarily need these people. All, the only people you need are people that actually help you deliver care, Right? Exactly. That was uh, spot on.
1: It's the reason you know, Netflix only does payment by uh, by credit card or PayPal or you know, digital means. They, they're not – in the business of chasing people down for checks, and and if we can streamline the system to make those extra pieces unnecessary, we can pass the savings on to the patient. And I think the value of a membership model is underappreciated in in all types of businesses. Um, but the, it, it is a critical piece that says now I can leverage out or level out all the bumps across the system. Yes, some people are going to need a lot more at times, and then less at others. And, and um, I can't tell a patient if they need an hour or 30 minutes because they say, well, I just need my sugars checked. Well, your sugars are 500, so this suddenly turned in from you know, a, a simple thing to a long thing. And, and, but I can't say, well, it was gonna be $5 to check your sugars, and now it's gonna be $100 to talk about them. And, you know, that's, that's not what the consumer wants It doesn't build trust, it's yada, yada. When, when we can actually have this very low pricing, in a membership, standardized, uh, efficient, automated. Now we can make 30% more than at least our local family physicians, um, seeing fewer patients, providing more time, more access, and we hope that equates to, to better care, while making co-pays and procedure fees uh, irrelevant, while making medicines and labs 95% cheaper. So we, we can, make more seeing fewer patients providing better care at a lower price we can combine all of that and go to your uh, employer and their insurance and decrease insurance premiums by up to 60% yeah you, if you get it you should wave the bs flag it's a, it you know it's as crazy as uh, 1990 telling me well in 15 years 20 years you're going to be walking around supercomputers in your pocket like right yeah at the price of car phones, <laughs> we're, I doubt we're going to get to super – and we did. We have, you know, the, the amazing tech because of, of brilliant people and, and good business. Um, and if we apply that to healthcare, then the doctors can take it from counterintuitive to like, okay, here's the, an evidence-based way of anal- analyzing this practice and realizing it, it is better, uh, it's just more sustainable profit for the physician but better care at better prices for the patient and, and really kind of revolutionary when you think about it. You could take this. There's no universal healthcare system in the world that isn't struggling, and they're struggling for the same reasons. Everything's over-engineered and expensive and bureaucratic and went, nope, this should be like buying groceries. It should be as simple as getting a tank of
0: gas or Netflix. Well, arguably, even arguably outcomes are also better. And I I go back to a story about 10 years ago. I interacted with a family doctor somewhere in West Virginia. I can't remember where. And I know that he got burnt out going to the ER to see patients in diabetic ketoacidosis. And what burnt them out was the fact that he believed that it was preventable, that if they just had regular care, regular treatment in advance, it would be unusual and rare for them to get into the situation. So the patient was in a worse situation because they weren't getting preventative or maintenance care. They weren't getting diagnosed properly. They weren't getting taken care of uh, properly. So yep. he asked these patients in the ER, and by the way, the patient had no insurance, so he wasn't getting paid for the ER business, <laughs> so pissed him off even more. But anyway, he said, look, could you pay you know, whatever the dollar value is? I think it was 70 bucks a month or 80 bucks a month in his model. Um, and I know you have that money because you just stuck a roof uh, on my house and I paid you in cash for sticking right. a roof on my house. So I know you have at least that amount. And then what he learned by doing this is that there was a core group of people who were uh, ready to participate, that that amount of money wasn't, uh, wasn't shocking to them. Uh, but more importantly, um, this cohort of people got their sugars under control this cohort of people had better blood pressures you know long term meaning that the chronic conditions that create the most expensive parts of medicine when we only deal with crisis care he was handling on the front end and doing it for pennies on the dollar but no less important he fired half of his staff Uh, well maybe he, he didn't fire them but he gracefully showed them the exit because he didn't need to have so many people on staff like you, he um, you know, didn't have to take care of a gazillion patients. He was making more money than he was making before and he was happier. So yeah. uh, I'm, I'm guessing that is the model you are propelling. Is that That's right? That's
1: the model. You know, Silicon Valley would say for a startup, do less and then obsess and i think that's what we're doing we're instead of taking care of 2000 patients just briefly superficially scratching the surface in 7 minute visits let's take care of 6 7 800 very thoroughly all your access you know if you need anything 24/7 start here and if you need more advanced care great uh, we got breast cancer chemotherapy for a woman for 6 dollars a month when she was quoted almost 700 dollars a month at the pharmacy with her insurance and so if If we have that ability, um, let's do it. Let's utilize it. Instead of taking the doctor's valuable time, uh, invaluable time, and plugging away on insurance forms that aren't saving hundreds of dollars, let's incentivize them to spend time obsessed on the customer and and say, okay, I'll find your chemotherapy wholesale. Um, I had a a college-age student uh, with a brain tumor. She had two neurosurgeons a neuro-oncologist, a social worker at the hospital, but we found her chemotherapy for $1,900 for every six months versus $26,000. All these different examples of doctors just taking time and focusing on the patient, not the paperwork, uh, is, is really what is
0: so, you know, groundbreaking. Um, no, not, everything is, not everything is primary care. So uh, we'll use the brain tumor as an example. Let's say someone shows up, they have a headache. Uh, I'm guessing you have access to lower cost scans than um, than you may otherwise get. But now you've got the diagnosis that you've got a a, a large meningioma on the left frontal lobe. Um, that's going to freak the patient out, of course. Yeah. So they're going to depend upon you to Uh, initially say, what is the import of this? And likely you're going to want to make the contact to a specialist. Do you have access to, um, I mean, is that, do you do the baton handoff and help them that process and find, find someone that you believe is talented?
1: I think the more the patients get thrown into the traditional system, the more they bounce back to us and say, well, boy, I got 10 minutes with the oncologist. I didn't get all my questions answered. They're, okay. Let's let's mm-hmm. see what your questions are. What can I answer? What's above my pay grade? What do I need to call the doctor back about? But sometimes they're just so raw. Well, well what do Acinephils mean? Right now, they don't mean anything. Mm-hmm. Okay. We, and you don't need right. that answer from the oncologist. I can help with that. Um, you or, can
0: translate then. So you may yes. actually be the translator. You may be the go-between to speak to the oncologist to get the meat. Uh, the meat of the message, and then ultimately the patient's going to come back to you anyway because you offer time. Right. And um, even though the patient's not divorced from the oncologist, they don't necessarily have to be entirely dependent on that one physician for everything and every need.
1: Right. We still have the, the system at large available to us, and
0: mm-hmm. um, and it's it's
1: an incredibly good system when you know you need it, just overpriced. But for certain things, again, insurance is the best. Way to purchase it for expensive and rare things. That's why we have homeowners insurance and life insurance and 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 these things. Um, so we we want both of these. You know, when we talk with insurance companies and, and we do regularly, they don't get it at first, which is understandable. But when they do, they say, "Look, I want you to sell me insurance I never use. That's the best mm-hmm. insurance. That's how Warren Buffett gets rich. Life insurance is the longest term between pay in and pay out, and he knows that, so he can." Use that money to invest and grow and leverage time. Um, so we want insurance that's a few hundred dollars a month for a family, not a few thousand. And they would still cover the car wrecks, cancers, and heart attacks because those are statistically rare. And even when they're expensive, the, the volume of spreading that risk out over a large population makes it okay. But then if you could make chemotherapy, and that's, I think, the, the kickback we get, well, you're a family doc. So that's checkups and stuff. You don't treat cancer. I may not treat the cancer, but I lowered the chemotherapy cost by $24,000. Yeah. So that's well, not, you, un,
0: yeah.
1: yeah uh, you participate in, in the treatment yeah.
0: of cancer, meaning that you are um, you are part of a system in terms of delivering care, even if you're not the direct person delivering the care. You're able to help solve a problem that likely the oncologist wouldn't spend a whole lot of time um, helping the patient with. I mean, you, right. the, the problem for the patient is more than just a health problem. Once they get a diagnosis of cancer, they don't know if they're going to live. Are they going to drain the family finances? Will Junior mm-hmm. be able to go to college? Is, is Junior be able to go to college? Or Dad going to live? I mean, that's a trade-off. That sounds horrible. And who wants it to is. make that? Who wants to make that decision? But it may not be a binary decision. It may be that hey, if we can find you cheaper medication. Um, junior can still go to college i mean that's that's right. not a bad outcome right in fact i would argue that's delivery of value
1: and i would yeah, i would uh, you know extend that a little further to say we we can't expect insurance to do that until the doctors innovate because until the doctors take ownership of this insurance is a payment model they they um, they aren't licensed physicians or pharmacists so they actually don't know what the wholesale price of some of this stuff is they're a participant in a broken marketplace as well. So you know, the, the physicians have top-level access to everything down. We have to be at this front of the war, innovating and, and working and finding lower costs and, and helping out so that insurance doesn't pay as much, so that your premiums aren't as high. So now instead of spending $1,500 a month, which is more than my mortgage uh, on health insurance, no, that we spend about $600 on health insurance, for a family of five, um, you you have you know anywhere eight hundred to a thousand dollars back in your pocket every month. Uh, that's life changing for ninety five percent of the, the country. You know that yes. means you still have the the cancer coverage you need if you go to the hospital, but you're paying a few hundred dollars for it, and you have more money to invest in Junior's college fund, and your doctor is going to help you get your chemotherapy for the cost of a latte a month. Cancer will always be scary. It'll be a whole lot less scary when you know it's not going to finance, it's physically ruining you and financially
0: ruining your family's future. So, the business argument for the patient would be direct primary care for frequent, um, predictable, likely needs and catastrophic insurance coverage for infrequent, um, financially devastating conditions that most people don't get. But if you get, you want to make sure you're taken care of. The blend of those two is likely lower cost and more satisfying to the patient than, you know, getting an everything insurance plan. Is that correct? I think so.
1: It's an evolution, you know, that now has a few moving pieces. The simplicity that was, I take my Blue Cross Shield card, anywhere in the healthcare system, and... I pay a copay and they take care of the rest. Kind of worked 20 years ago, but even in the 90s, we were fighting about the broken healthcare system. So um, we need to get back to a more logical system. If that third party payer worked, not just to try to hate on them, but we would see it at the grocery store, in the gas station, and at the department store, and everywhere else in our life.
0: Uh, but I'm, it, trying it, to get, I'm, I'm trying to imagine <laughs> getting pre certified to fill up my tank
1: oh it's hilarious yes you know and 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 your you know a state farm would tell you which gas stations you can shop at and and, and how many you know gallons of gas you can get I mean, is
0: Exxon in network is that where uh, you're going with that? exactly
1: <laughs> well, you have to get pre-qualified for trips out of town and
0: yeah. and
1: this doesn't cover other drivers in your car or wriggle car I need a you know, referral
0: <laughs> from Ford to uh, <laughs> That's
1: exactly it. yeah uh, for I, my mechanic
0: yeah and <laughs>
1: And he's not open on Fridays and I have a business, you know. So yeah, When you um, hear about
0: it that way, it does sound absolutely absurd. And these, these are just half of the fights. I mean, when I talk to physicians, it's, it's fights with insurance companies, pre-certification, um, electronic medical records that are designed mostly for reimbursement and are not readable by the average doctor for the right. average condition, oh, yes. maintenance of certification, medical politics. These are these are a lot of headaches. Um, I'm guessing you've now divorced yourselves from at least some of these, correct? I would say all of those
1: uh, (laughs) effectively, you know, because now our judge and juror is the patient. We have to provide good cost effective care to them. Um, and that doesn't mean they're happy all the time. Um, I've never been wow. happy when a cop gave me a speeding ticket, but <laughs> well, we don't dr- <laughs> judge Why not? Uh, cops. Yeah, exactly, because <laughs> I was speeding.
0: Um, yeah. you
1: know, so, so there's sometimes we, we don't judge. My accountant, I tell him every year I've got two goals, one, to pay no taxes, and two, not to go to jail. And, and yeah. every year, I'm not in jail, but I've always paid taxes. So he's only 50% right. successful, you know, but that's perfect. Uh, so, you know, we'll work with patients and say, no, you, you shouldn't get antibiotics for this. And I'm, I won't give you Xanax or Adderall or these abusable things um, when it's not clinically appropriate. But now we have a relationship with them and, and we're working with them and uh, we're saving them money and providing value. I mean, we'll beat that value drum all day long is we're proving our value to them. If they don't like it, they, they can go anywhere else versus an insurance that says, no, you have a closed network. Um, but, uh, but it really does get us back to the roots of what we're supposed to be doing, which is patient focused. Um, you mentioned prior authorizations and my partner had a patient traveling and of course lost her meds. So vaccine in medicine that we would normally dispense in the office. Lisinopril, mm-hmm. 10 milligrams, nothing special about that 90 pills. Got a prior off, and they got it declined. And so <laughs> it probably They're got already declined. on it. <laughs> They're already on it, because yeah. he was being snarky. Will the patient die without this medication? And he's eventually, I mean, yes, your high blood pressure will all eventually die, so yeah. But the point is, it costs us a penny a pill. So they did a prior off for a medicine that cost 90 cents, and I'm sure that we drug it out long enough to spend 90% of their employees' time or $0.90 cents of their employees' time. Um, That's how broken the system is. We're doing prior auth for medicine. We're trying to use insurance at all for a medicine that's $0.90. Cents. I guarantee you, in traveling, she probably bought a drink, a coffee, a pop, something somewhere that cost more than $0.90, cents, and no one else was involved in it, just them and the cashier. So why are we in, in including insurance for these things? Well, because the patient doesn't know, because the doctor hasn't taught them. Again, art of war. The soldier makes a mistake, blames the general. We have to blame the doctors. We are the ones who need to be innovative and we're seeing support from the patients and that's always very helpful in a grassroots movement to motivate the physicians. But we're, you know, the tip of the spear. Where we go, the rest follows. And if we show a...
0: You you've sold me. I mean, I'm I'm on board with this because I think it's just a brilliant idea. But go back into the time machine when you first got started. I'm guessing this was not an easy sell only because you're an innovator. And um, I think it was um, uh, Machiavelli said the the entrepreneur has the hardest job uh, in the world. He has. um, enemies who have done well in the old order and at best lukewarm supporters <laughs> in those who do well in the new yes. order. Yes. So um, I, I'm guessing it was not an easy sell initially because not every not everyone's an early adopter.
1: You know, it was uh, it was interesting, and that's such a great quote because it, it couldn't be truer. Um, I was that guy all through undergrad and med school and residency, saying this is what I'm going to do, and and most med students and residents have never seen insurance and don't care and and we're just trying to get through the rest um but then when they saw it and they got frustrated they'd come back and say "Now explain that to me again and <laughs> you know it seems hard but, but patients always seemed to hear it you know peter uh, teal style they heard better easier faster cheaper sign me up you know in residency in 2007 maybe 2008 I was giving my cell phone number out to my residency patients, which are traditionally not well-to-do patients, but you know they cherished that. They, they were not of a social economic class that got a physician's phone number. Right. You know, that was not. That was un- and, and they respected it and they loved it. And the example in particular was a hospice patient. They were upset that the hospice nurse saw it on the fridge and called me direct for help. Like, no, don't abuse it. Like, no, that's exactly what it's there for. For um, people people understood that a doctor was trying to do something better for them. And and even before we had the wholesale med prices and lab prices, just, you'll come to my home, you're, you're trying, this is $10, kept it affordable, high value, patient obsessed, um, and, and and they got it. You know, when we originally did our business model, uh, 2010, we are hoping to grow at five to 10 patients a month. First month we opened, we got 30 patients, and, and about 30 patients a month from there on out. Um, for the first nine months and then added our second position. So in a weird way, patients who are just tired of a broken system, the more frustrated they were, the more they didn't, the, the more they needed something they they weren't looking for. But once they heard about it, once they found it, once they tried it, walked through the door and you know, they see we would go farther for them than anyone had in a long time. And, and they felt empathy and cared for. And the funny thing about that is, you know, they, um, Seth Godin type, you know, purple cow marketing stuff. They they told everybody, yeah, this is uh, the, another book, Contagious: Why Good Ideas Go Viral. Um, it was so interesting, so new, so exciting that they had a little golden ticket that no one else had. Um, I I think, you know, they were our, our best marketers and salespeople. So just by doing really good work, the rest followed. Doc- doctors were much harder to convince. Um, you know, Wichita, Kansas is home to some very famous rich people, and the, the physicians heard concierge medicine, and that you're mm-hmm. here to uh, skim off the top and leave the rest of the system a bit more broken for the rest of us. Um, but when they heard $10 a month for kids, unlimited home visits, work visits, offices, it's yada yada, they maybe they understand it, but it was a lot harder to argue against um, because Okay, that's not the concierge, elitist tens of thousands of dollars model that I, I was expecting.
0: Um, I heard one per- person describe it: it's concierge medicine for either the middle class or the indigent, meaning that it's yeah. affordable concierge care. You get concierge service, um, but you know it, it. Anybody can do it; it's doable.
1: It's blue collar concierge, mm-hmm. uh, which is so funny because all. Kind of innovation starts like that. Airbags were originally only in high-end cars, and now they're standard in in all cars. Um, the best phones, early phones, were only available to the wealthiest, and now homeless people have. Seven percent of uh, homeless people have a phone. They may not have a phone plan, but they can get on free Wi-Fi and stuff. You mentioned indigent care. I would say this is the best way to care for indigent people because. Um, a system could pay a flat membership. They tend to be mobile. They, they don't participate in normal life the same way. A homeless person is not going to walk into a pre-scheduled appointment at a doctor's mm-hmm. office if they haven't showered and, 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 you know, been cared for. So they get left out of the system. But we, we, physicians have to innovate if they're going to find ways to care for those different populations. Um, and often it's not going to be through a standard insurance model. So you know the thinking that got us here is not the thinking that'll get us there. Um, but the problem is we've made physicians very good rule followers. We're Stepford wives. We're, we're very good pre-med students, med students, resident uh, interns, residents, junior partners. Before you know it, you're 45 years old, before, right. and no one's For taught followers. you actually. Yeah, no one's taught you leadership skills or innovation skills. Um, and you've got a mortgage and private school and a and a car, and so you're not going to try to rock the boat too much. So I think that's the key reason healthcare is so slow on on some types of innovation.
0: Is this model being taught to residents so that when they leave the program, um, when they leave the training, and I recognize <laughs> business is often not taught in residency programs You just kind of go into the real world and hopefully figure it out, mm-hmm. but it seems like um, there would be some benefit to at least having a one-day in service on various types of models and how to how to get started how is it that you could open up your own dpc practice on day one once you graduate what does it take to do it what are the moving pieces is that is that taught anywhere
1: it's starting um we do all the consulting for free uh for for physicians we're passionate about this model rising tides raise all ships all of our stuff is available online free for docs um but lots of doctors in this movement are doing things like that. We're all just so happy to be here that we want other people to be happy and, and to join. Uh, there was uh, American Academy of Family Physicians just had a direct primary care summit and had a scholarship with, for patients or uh, residents to join. I think we had 30 uh, med students and residents, which is great. 10% of, of the total attendance. Um, Benjamin Rush Institute is an excellent group that's, that has sent me to you know, a few dozen med schools uh, and residencies to talk about this model uh, and other physicians. So And I think now we're getting to the point where students and residents are requesting information on this. Um, they don't really care if it's insurance or direct care. You know, they're, they don't have a dog in that hunt yet, but they do know they want a better lifestyle, less stress. They want to use technology. They want to avoid insurance headaches. So uh, that tide is turning.
0: I think the hardest part for a graduating resident would just be how to market and get your first few people in the door. Because like you said, word of mouth, once you get started, others will follow. It's just getting your first few patients. But it may be the same problem um, in the insurance world, meaning that how do you get your first few patients when you graduate unless you join an established group?
1: I think that's the learned helplessness of we run to safety and security. If I take Blue Cross, Blue Cross will send me patients. Mm-hmm. So, look, we cut through all this, and it was risky. Um, let's, let's push a little harder. Uh, I love a book, The Richest Man in Babylon, and, you know, basically says, you know, get diamond advice from a diamond guide, Get, get good advice from people who have done what you're looking at. And, and no offense to attendings. I've had amazing attendings, but they're very good in the academic setting. They're not diamond guys. They're, they're something else. They've never run a business. They've never done marketing. They they haven't experienced direct care. So often they'll provide advice that's counterintuitive to residents because the, the attendees haven't experienced the business side of this, um, the financial side. Uh, well, look, if you moonlight hard and you, you work, you'll be fine. Um, and if you provide really great value, patients will find you. If it was hard when we started 10 years ago when no one knew what this was, and there were maybe five clinics in the country doing something like this, um, now we we opened 23 clinics, 22 clinics in May, 13 in June, and we've opened 10 so far in July. It's growing, and and we're probably only 67% of the market. So um, it's going to get easier. Uh, If you build it, they they will come.
0: So you think the hardest part may even be behind it. I mean um – I mean, how does one open a DPC practice if they've just graduated? What are the things they need to do? What do what do they prioritize in terms of making this happen?
1: A stethoscope and an you know in a, an exam room. I mean, uh, and a shoestring uh, because we are lucky. We we are the talent. Um, you can surround yourself with a lot of bells and whistles and, and a nice office, a waiting room, and a coffee machine, and,
0: and that's staff, not necessary. You're saying
1: it's it's not a, it's not key and critical to success. And okay. you can start lean and and humble. And, and when you're a resident who's used to making forty or fifty thousand a year, you you can make that pretty quick on a smaller number of patients, and you can build up to more, or you can moonlight, and, or you can get a little bit of a loan. And you know I I'll pay more in taxes most years than I'll pay in med student loans so and I think that's where mm-hmm. sometimes bad financial advice from attendings or school systems that are just not part of the private world they, they hyper focus on um, the, the the med student debt. That's the least of your concerns at uh, overall. So in most businesses the uh, I don't know if you've seen the i fix it chains for smartphones yeah. and screens and stuff it's a hundred thousand dollars starting fee. Just to get into the the franchise there, so a lot of businesses spend a lot of money to get started. Um, we don't really have to. We can. I've, you know, we some clinics will start very nice. Others will start for fifteen thousand dollars. And fresh carpet and clean paint will make you know a, a basic place look kind of nice. And uh, you don't really need a whole lot else. You, a pill counter, a vials machine, some other things make life easier. But very doable
0: but you have to have relationships with a wholesaler for the drug company uh, for the pharmaceutical entities and an imaging center to get the type of pricing i mean that that probably requires some sweat equity to get rolling nope
1: Nope. i mean the wholesalers want to work with doctors Uh, i'd say it takes less than a week to do the paperwork you know it's are you a real physician you know what you know credit background check some basic stuff um but uh but the wholesalers or kind of like Amazon, they, they want to sell to you. And the lab companies are getting more familiar with this client bill arrangement all the time. The uh, outpatient imaging centers are actually very competitive. It's a commodity, and they know this is like a hotel room. They make no money if no one's in the machine. Mm-hmm. So cash prices, it. they've got to fill it. And if it's not full on an insurance patient, then let's fill it with a cash patient. And uh, and we find that they're um, equally very receptive to to cash patients. And um, uh, so it, in that sense, it's a sustainable, profitable piece for all the other vendors that we're using to kind of build this this puzzle. Uh, and we, we want it to be we, we from the beginning. Um, so th- those things are only getting easier uh, to establish.
0: Here's um, an interesting experiment that I did not too long ago. I needed an MR scan. I think it was of my cervical spine and I just called a local imaging center, and the first question, of course, was, you know, what insurance do you have? Because I was asking what the price was, and they gave me a a price. Then I called back a little while later, and I told them I had no insurance, and um, I just wanted to know what the cash price was. And the number was lower, significantly lower. And that was shocking to me because I thought one of the benefits of having traditional (laughs) insurance was bulk pricing at discount. You know, um, they're supposed to get, you know, be able to crush the market. Yet here I was getting penalized because I had insurance. Um,
1: Oh, that is the great emperor's new clothes lie. Hang
0: on. So so then I (laughs) I followed up and said... um, well, okay, um, I'll just pay you cash. I don't want to use my insurance. Is that no, now that we know you have insurance, I have to give you the insurance price. Well, (laughs)
1: Um, so uh, point of education, uh, the high-tech act allows patients to, um, for quote privacy reasons,
0: choose to use their
1: insurance if it's better or choose not to use their insurance for privacy so so patients can um, request that cash price yeah
0: they didn't get that um, memo I don't think they didn't <laughs> except that Sometimes, you know,
1: you know, it's a broken system oh my uh, God. But no no that's what is so funny is but you would expect insurance had pre-negotiated rates that were better um, that is the point of it but they've creates uh, it's a cold war of mistrust between the providers and the insurance company so You don't pay us enough, so then we, you know, or you think we order too many MRIs, so you increase the paperwork burden uh, for to get paid Mm -hmm. on MRIs, so then they they raise the price of MRIs, and yeah, it just keeps going back and forth.
0: And you this never all see that. me a headache. Oh, just listening to
1: this. <laughs> you need an MRI, it, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I hope it's yeah. something other than herpes encephalitis.
1: Uh, okay. <laughs> one so can only hope.
0: One can only hope. So I know that, uh, okay, so we talked about graduating residents, getting into DPC. What about for people in established insurance practices? I'm going to guess that they believe it's sc- it's a scary proposition to to shed um the insurance world, something that they may hate, but it's familiar. Um, Do do you find that the transition is challenging for people out in the field for a number of years? And the second part of that question, what about um, a blended practice where you take Medicare, for example, but no other insurance? Um, I think
1: a doctor with an existing practice has the best of all worlds. It's it's, uh, easiest to convert their practice because they already have a group of patients who uh, know their style and like it and, and want that doctor. Um, and now you can say, look, you, you probably noticed over the years this has gotten harder and more expensive, and, and we're going to do this new thing that you may have read about or heard about direct primary care, and here's all the ways it's going to help you and save your money. So we routinely convert practices and convert, you know, three, four, five hundred patients over to the model. So they start more profitable there than the traditional system. And then they bring on more providers or grow their practice to take care of those patients. So that actually works out really well. They've already got a location, exam tables and, and phones and staff. Um, so, yeah, that conversion
0: ends up being easier. Uh, the hybrid what, about model? Medicaid, yeah, what about Medicare? Because Medicare is kind of unique in that um, – you know, when, once you get to be 65 or so, it's not as if you have multiple models that are out there, and and the elderly are used to particular type of care. Talk well,
1: about that. Well, I think this works great uh, for Medicare patients. One, they don't lose anything. Um, two, uh, depending on the study, a third of all Medicare bills are paid out of pocket by the patient. If mm-hmm. you look at retirement um, uh, investment articles, they'll talk have you know four or five six thousand dollars a year for your outpatient expenses as part of your living expenses. And Medicare is great at what it pays for and horrible at what it chooses not to. Um, There's a a patient that a lot of medicine that a lot of Medicare patients need. It's $66 a pill at the pharmacy, uh, cash price without Medicare, that we get for 13 cents wholesale. So they pay for their membership in two pills. And not to mention unlimited visits and choosing their doctor and hour-long appointments. Um, but routinely, uh, even something as regular as Lipitor, we're still cheaper wholesale than the patient's copay for Lipitor. Um, so now you're saving Medicare a significant number of dollars as well. Uh, and then if they need something, hospital or specialist, great, send them to Medicare.
0: So Medicare is like the catastrophic coverage. Nothing's changed in the model. And the argument is the same, which is um, you don't really have to participate in Medicare. Indeed, you may opt out. But um, Medicare is to be used for the catastrophic event. In your world, they're still paying the membership fee um, Mm -hmm. to get the all-you-can-eat things that you're capable of delivering, plus all the ancillary savings that you you can help deliver. So Medicare shouldn't be thought of In your model as a special case it's really just one of it's just yet another insurance company
1: exactly and we can use it better to make it more sustainable there was an article just yesterday that uh, Medicare is running out of money and it is if we continue down this this path Uh, um, Secretary Azar was talking about this because nobody is is actively trying to bend or break that cost curve but direct care is because I can't just rely on billing a third party that the patient ever sees and, and squeezing the most I can from them, my value has to be 100% clear and transparent to the patient. So they have to see that, okay, I'm paying 13 cents a pill and that's worth it to me and and wonderful. Um, or it's okay that um, I would normally have a $20 copay, but it's free, but I get an hour and this doctor will pay attention to me and treat me like an individual, not like a Medicare number. Um, and they'll call, text, email me. I still have access to them if I'm traveling. And I, and I think we we lump all Medicare patients, 65 to 105, in one group. And your your new baby boomers aren't tolerating the poor customer service that you know, maybe some you know octarians are. And they speak back. They they, yeah. they speak back. They're the still noise. working. They're active. They're this is you know 65 is, is the new 40. So you know they're texting. They're emailing. They're they're engaged, and they want someone that's engaging back with them. Um, and that ultimately saves Medicare. Uh, I'll take it one step further, and this help would be perfect for Medicaid. And plenty of studies show that basically any financial model for for paying for healthcare, private or public, um, uh, lives and dies on. a a solid foundation of primary care. If you don't have that, nothing else works. Um, We can do the most number of things at the best price. So then uh, Medicaid, state of Kansas, was paying $400 a month for pediatric seizure medicine, generic Keppra, that we could get wholesale for $12. So why is CVS or Walgreens getting $388 every month when the Medicare recipient, the poor at-risk individual, is because, only they, getting can. because yeah. they can because uh-huh. no one else is stopping them because we, doctors aren't engaged in competing against them working on value for their patients and so i'll tell the left or the right that this is a perfect model i, I can't double the your budget for medicare because most states are out of money but i bet you i can double your purchasing power so you can take care of more people more often at a lower price which means fewer taxes and, and ultimately better economic growth for the state. State of Kansas is paying $54 a month for adult diapers that we could get for $2.10.
0: It's broken. I mean, the, the most powerful argument is you can take care of more people. Um, yeah. So if you've got a bigger budget, you can take, or, well, actually it's the same budget. You same, budget. same budget and you just deliver. Let me add, I mean, you. it sounds like you have a reasonable relationship with insurance ca- uh, carriers, but I, my my limited experience with just a handful of DPC doctors, they were early adopters. They didn't have such a great relationship with insurance companies because I believe they, they viewed DPC as a threat. I don't know why, but they viewed it as a threat. And they filed, believe it or not, they filed a complaint against this, mm-hmm. this doctor's little practice stating that because he was collecting a membership fee, he was engaged in the business of insurance. Yes. Um, And because he was a a quote-unquote insurance company, he needed to be regulated as an insurance company with minimal capitalization requirements of anywhere between a quarter of a million, a million dollars, paperwork, submission of rates, the Department of Insurance, blah, blah, blah. I mean, this was patently ridiculous. Um, And that was 10 years ago, I guess, did you ever experience that, and B, has the world changed, and C, why would insurance companies ever view this practice as a threat? It seems ridiculous.
1: Yeah, that, I think that was actually like 15 years ago, and they ultimately, they only investigated and then closed the investigation when he went from billing on the 1st to the 31st. <laughs> and so <laughs> yeah. uh, it was brilliant. Like, well, if you bill on the 1st, you're somehow an insurance company, but but not on the 31st. So.
0: And so you're talking about prospectively or retro, quote-unquote retrospectively? Well, you know? that
1: was uh, that case, and they said, well, you're an insurance company if you're billing before services are rendered, and that's mm-hmm. not the legal definition of an insurance company. Um, we've come a long way since then. I think a lot of it, the insurance frustration, again, I'll put back on the physician, is when this was concierge medicine or insurance-free practices, private practices, in the late 99s, 2000s, uh, and just getting off the ground, it was, you know, damn the torpedoes because we're going to take insurance down. They're wrong and bad and evil. And we didn't appreciate the business model and its full complexity is uh, I, I can use cash for almost everything around my car. But if I get in a car accident you know, or hailstorm, I want insurance for it. Um, again, same thing for my home or, or other stuff if it's really expensive or potential for expensive things, insurance is a good and appropriate tool when used correctly. But there's a reason State Farm doesn't sell um, uh, medical health insurance, because it's not really insurance. Uh, It's not an actual actuarial table that they Mm -hmm. want to participate with. So when we came along, we said, look, we want to create enough value that they want to work with us, uh, preferentially over the status quo. Because we want them to say that they make more money at a lower premium and get more market share by working with us. Because we're out competing CVS and Walgreens and the lab. And anyone else billing insurance is looking for as much as they can possibly get. And we're looking for how much we can save the patients. We want to appropriately align the incentives. So it's you know, essentially uh, you know, patient, physician, employer, insurance company.
0: The government they're all on board now they're, they're they're all on board i
1: mean to that credit um and it took starbucks 17 years to get 17 stores when we started again there were less than five doing this model in 2010 and now we have over a 1, 1200 practices doing direct care and we got to the executive order uh that end of june that specifically stated direct primary care will be uh, you know uh, nh and irs approved expense That's unheard of. When we say
0: expense, one of the things you're relating to concerns health savings accounts, correct?
1: Right. The IRS has been very quiet on uh,
0: a key question: uh, Can patients use their
1: health savings accounts for the membership? Mm -hmm. And by all interpretations of the law, yes. But uh, the bigger the employer, the more likely HR is to get a little anxious about that. Because um, the IRS just never said yes, and we're working hard behind the scenes to fix that and say, okay, well, let's educate the IRS and insurance companies and Congress about what this is and why it's not an insurance company for all the various reasons, and how this is good for everybody. This is no one left or right is against more affordable care. This is a beautifully non you know bi, or nonpartisan bipartisan topic where we all win. If we can improve the healthcare industry, which is twenty percent of the GDP, and uh, um, so, but it just it's, it takes a little bit of time to grind through that process.
0: So this and, is a uh, recent political victory for you, oh, for DPC, meaning that what was previously ambiguous in terms of the membership fees for a DPC practice now is explicit. That it is considered a um, a legitimate uh, expense as it relates to health care. And so if you have a health savings account, you can feel free to use whatever money you have parked into a health savings account to pay for these membership fees and have money left it's, over. Sounds it's like. a little
1: funnier because we've been doing it this whole time.
0: <laughs> thousands, <laughs> yeah.
1: tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of patients have been doing it every month for years.
0: But now you years. know. Now but
1: you know. now, now yeah. it's going to be – we're 99.9% 9, done because uh, the executive order tr- told Treasury to to uh, make it official. They have 180 days. They haven't done it yet, but we suspect they, they will soon. From uh, uh, all up. of our – Yeah.
0: yeah. On day 179, um, you'll get a draft.
1: And for, well, uh, 180 days is December 22nd. So I suspect we'll we, – we don't want to do it – the, uh, the, the hotter the presidential campaign gets, the – the more people want to avoid putting themselves into it. So I suspect a, a Friday um, release in, at a boring time. Um, but, uh, but thankfully the Treasury's uh, you know been very uh, gracious to listen to us and answer our questions and let us answer their questions. And, and they want what's best for America too. Uh, and what's best for
0: patients. Right. So you can start chilling, is, so you can start chilling the champagne, just don't uncork it quite yet. Right. Yeah.
1: So no, I think, yeah, we're, we're got the foil off the buzzer's about to ring we're putting on championship hats uh, <laughs> we are just waiting to to have it all official um and and it'll be great for for patients everywhere
0: all right so we're, we're running short on time i'm going to do a, a a giant move from dpc to just your personal life um, and i'd like to i'd like to Well, the reason I want to bring it up is because on your website, you say that your eldest child was born with Down syndrome, and this is a fact that's important to you on your website to know you is to understand this is a part of your life. I have a son with pretty severe autism and medication-resistant epilepsy diagnosed at the age of three, and that was definitely a radical transformation for my life, uh, my wife's life, my daughter's life. Um, So I like to think we've adjusted and adapted, and and honestly, right now, I can't imagine our lives without him. Um, Just talk a little bit about your son and how his diagnosis changed your life, changed your priorities, and how this potentially interacted with your professional decisions.
1: Sure. Uh, Actually, it was our first daughter, uh, Caitlin,
0: and uh, we had her when my wife, a month
1: after my wife graduated nursing school, and I was in fourth year of medical school. Um, and it was uh, completely unexpected, um, but you, there's that initial shock. And for us, we, we, you know, gracious, it, it lasted a day or two. And we had some health concerns, and we spent a few weeks in the ICU. But you get over that, and you say, hey, this, this is it. Um, we'll make the best of it, and we'll, this will teach us something new, and, and we'll grow into it. And like we talked about, there's a, a great a poem. Welcome to Holland, and I think it just beautifully summarizes this, but, but the situation for lots of patients who see their life going Describe a the Welcome
0: to Holland, because I've read it and actually turned me on to it, and I really like it, but just give the briefest of summaries as to what the Welcome to Holland is.
1: Yeah, you know, it's a tearjerker for any family that's kind of gone through something like this because it it hits it so well, but the idea that your whole life you've wanted to go to Italy, your friends are in Italy, Italy's amazing, you can't wait to experience it, and, and you land in Holland, and it's, it's just different. Holland's great, and there's a lot of people in Holland who love being there, but it's not what you were expecting. It's not what your friends get to do, and so um, you, you you change perspectives, and you realize that uh, Holland will be great if we lean into it and, and make it great and um, and find the things to love and cherish about this, and so Caitlin is uh, wonderful, uh, not without our challenges, but we I think right. it's given us a, a richer view on life. Not everybody has to, you know, be good at chemistry um, or great at math, but she's hilarious. And she watches her YouTube family um, that, you know, kind of video blogs. And so then she walks around the house with her iPad uh, and her camera on talking like she's you know talking to her fans. And we say hi to her subscribers. And she's 13 now. So, of course, dad's embarrassing to any 13-year-old. Oh, Sorry, yeah. that's my dad, you know. And it's hilarious, um, and she sings and she acts, and you know, we and we've had her run five Ks, and we just we go with it. We're in Holland, and we're going to make the best of it. Um, uh, again, not to to whitewash it, it's, it's been harder at times, but it's also you know uh, invited us into a community of other families that uh, have Down syndrome or other abilities, and and we get to uh, experience that world as well and help them and, and meet others. And so, you know, you, you, you feel like in the beginnings,
0: you you are, you are feel shocked. alone. Yeah, yeah you're shocked. you feel bit. alone. It's an uncertain road you certainly didn't imagine. Um, what you don't appreciate early on are the things that we always took for granted. Um, when, when you see these tiny victories, and, and I do mean often they are tiny, they are extraordinary. Now, yeah. you, you you hit the nail on the head. Not every day is a wonderful day. You you definitely have health issues. You have lifelong issues. We're trying to you know make a determination as to where our son Josh will ultimately live when he doesn't live with us any longer. Um, but you know the flip side is also true. We also have tremendous victories that otherwise we never would have considered as being. In play um, right so um, yeah it's not something that I would have affirmatively and consciously chosen in advance but once we're in Holland you know once we got to Holland we realized you know Holland's actually a pretty cool place
1: it's not gonna change you're there you, you learn to make the best of it
0: and uh, um,
1: and if you do it, it it's all the richer for it
0: well I appreciate you sharing that um, Let's close. Why don't you tell uh, me, or tell our audience where people can learn more about DPC if they're thinking about transitioning or getting started. What's, where is the clearinghouse for information, and how can they get in touch with you in particular?
1: Sure. Uh, I think the best place to go is um, uh, atlas.md/map. M A P. Then we have a, a link there to a map that does uh, it shows all the different direct care doctors across the country and that's constantly growing. Um, you can find us on Twitter at or Atlas MD, uh, Facebook as well, um, there's a great website, the um, Doctors for Patient Care, and they do a lot of amazing work for direct primary care. Um, I Want Direct Care is another great website with information there. But honestly, just even Googling direct primary care, tons of doctors with YouTube videos, from conferences or public speaking. Um, I have a Google alert for it, and every day there's an article about a new direct care clinic or something changing. So uh, tons of great resources online.
0: Well, I appreciate you turning us on to uh, this. I hope you'll come back and speak with us uh, again. And, and finally, thanks uh, for making primary care cool again.
1: Oh, well, thank you uh, for the opportunity to share our passion with your listeners.
0: Okay, thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MED-JUST. That's 1-877-MED-JUST or 633-5878. Our stat hotline is a service offered to all current members It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at Infonews, that's O news at MedicalJustice.com. That's Infonews at MedicalJustice.com. Now if you're not an existing member of medical or dental justice, but want to bulletproof your practice from medical legal threats, our admin, Wendy Cates, is your best resource for information about our protection plans, implementation, best practices, and pricing models. Wendy can be reached directly at 336-358-5587. We offer discounts for large groups and protect doctors of all specialties in all states. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.